The views and opinions expressed are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any company. Any content provided should be considered their opinion and are not intended to be interpreted as an endorsement. Today's topic is a look into the life of a scientist solving a problem. Welcome to our Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast brought to you by Bruker Nano Analytics. We look forward to bringing you a new podcast regularly. My name is Cody Morton. I'm a marketing communications specialist at Bruker Nano Analytics and an information enthusiast. If you like to learn from specialists in their field and hear what technologies are solving their problems, you will enjoy this podcast. Every session, we will focus on a different problem that our colleagues face in the lab and in the field. Some of the solutions will be a variation of ideas you may have heard before or even worked with. We will bring you these topics in a new and interesting way and introduce you to updated and thought-provoking results. We will talk about how the problem was dealt with in the past and what we're doing to solve the problem now and perhaps even envision future solutions. Join us as we talk solutions with a variety of scientists and technicians in many different industries in the Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We have Jess Cloris, our object conservator for Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and Gianfranco Pacabene, chief paintings conservator there at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Thank you. Thank you both for joining me. Jess, you are the objects conservator there, and we're talking paintings. Were you involved at all in the conservation for this particular piece? That's a great question. So I was not involved in the conservation or restoration of this piece, but I was involved in the technical, um, scientific technical analysis of this piece. Our conservation department does not have a staff scientist, and I have done multiple different workshop trainings with X-ray fluorescence. And so in our lab, I am the pseudo um, XRF scientist. And so one of the great things is that I end up collaborating a lot with my colleagues on different analysis projects. Jess, were you interested in science as a young child, as a student, or did that kind of fall into place after you realized you could do so much more with conservation, given uh, the more science you add to it? Yeah, I think as a younger person, I was more interested in the art and art history classes. But as I learned about the field of conservation and started working towards that as my career goal and going to graduate school at the University of Delaware, I you know, really had a firsthand experience with all of the different kind of analytical tools that are available to conservators and, you know, it hooked me. Very good. I think it's one thing that when I meet art conservators, they are art enthusiasts first and art lovers and humanities studies people that just kind of got bitten by the science bug once they started realizing how those two things could go together so well. I love it. Yeah, they go great hand in hand. They really do. And then John Franco, I assume that this was a project that uh, you oversaw from beginning to end. 
were you involved in deciding what piece you would work on to conserve or was this just list of one, two, three, four, and you finally got to this piece that needed conserved? Uh, that's a great question. So, you know, the conservation department here at the Gardner, you know, we have a we have a, a sort of a master plan of, of what needs to be worked on over the course of the next four or five years, whatever it is. But we also have to sort of not collaborate, but we have to coordinate that with loans and exhibitions. So things that might be going to another museum, traveling, as in the case of the Titian, which it did do over the last year and a half, and also any exhibition we have here. So often those, those two things, the need for an object to be worked on and, you know, it coincides with an exhibition or a loan, then we integrate that into our work schedule to, to make it happen. Uh, which was the case here with the Titian, that, that we were looking at it as a conservation project, but not one that had to be done immediately. But then with the exhibition, we you know, had, to, had to do all the work that we did to prepare it for that. So with a, with a conservation, this is not a small piece. It's by means probably not the largest piece there at the museum, but were you concerned about timing since you did have this project kind of a, a finite time it had to be done in were you a little nervous getting started that you might not be able to finish yeah uh no actually you know i i think we were we were reasonably well prepared i mean there were a lot of discussions going on well be well before we actually started doing any technical analysis or any conservation treatment you know because it's a big deal in fact you know the one thing that everybody needs to be aware of that this is one of the most iconic works of art in the museum. Some people would argue it's the, the one, country, but yeah, whatever, too, in the country, it's, you know? it's an amazing painting. It's, it's a really significant painting. And it was a big deal because the painting had never been loaned. It, it's never been out of the museum. Uh, and so there were a lot of issues in terms of like, well, how can it travel? Is it safe? But in terms of the schedule, we had a lot of prep time in terms of, okay, this is really happening. And then we started talking about, well, what does it need to, in terms of any potential treatment, whether it was structural, and we'll, we can get in that later in terms of its how it physically could travel. And then also the aesthetic component, which is, did it need cleaning? What kind of restoration needed to be done? Uh, all those things were worked into that. And then the other big part of that was before we do any treatment uh, typically, and this was a, a much more involved and comprehensive treatment than anything that we would typically do, but this was really, you know, digging into all the, the, the sort of information we could learn about the object before we worked on it. And so then, you know, we started talking, Jess and I, about what are the technical things we're going to do aside from infrared imaging and, you know, UV light imaging, you know, all the x-rays that, you know, we might need. Uh, so we had a good chunk of time, but yeah, we were on a schedule. And of course, the other big piece of this is that nobody wants to see the painting off you. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of juggling and, and it worked in, you know, there were phases that we worked on in terms of the structural work and some of the technical work. And then it went back on view and then we did the cleaning. And then, it, and of course, then it was gone for, you know, well over a year for, you know, it traveled to London and Madrid. You worked in the gallery at one point. Oh, yeah, they, yeah, there was a lot <laughs> of juggling. Lot of juggling. It's, it's a big deal. And uh, yeah, we had to sort of yeah, dance through all those schedule things. Yeah. But I don't feel like we were ever stressed about, no. you know, we had enough time. So that was good. These exhibitions okay. are planned very carefully, especially a large multi-venue international yeah. exhibit like this. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And so we're talking about The Rape of Europa, which is Titian's uh, one of six pieces that were commissioned, were they commissioned for or given to Philip, mm -hmm. King Philip II? Commissioned, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, this is the first time in just years and years and years that these pieces have been back together and they're now traveling. Is the Gardner Museum the last location that they're at as a group? Yeah, we are. We're the last location. I think it's close to 500 years. It's yeah, been, about, 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 four, about, four, about four, 450 four, years four. since they've all been together. So we are the only North American venue for this show. And in January, the other paintings will go back to their permanent homes. So and ours will return to its gallery, which is called the Titian Room. <laughs> Oh, very good. So the other pieces, two of the pieces hang together in the National Gallery in London. And then the other pieces, are they together as well in Spain or did they come from single collections themselves? They come from single collections. So the uh, the Diana and Callisto and the Diana and Acteon are the ones you just mentioned, which are London. And it's actually they're shared with Edinburgh. It's kind of the National Gallery of Scotland and them for credit purposes. Mm-hmm. And then the Venus and Adonis is, is Madrid. So you remember <laughs> all that come from. And then the Danai, which is... Uh, a piece from the uh, Duke of Wellington collection at Apsley House in London. And then the other, the final piece is Perseus and Andromeda, also in London at the Wallace collection um, is where they, where they all reside. And then Isabella Stewart Gardner had procured this piece herself and has conservation work been done on it before of any sort? Is there work that gets done on some of the larger pieces annually or regularly? So some of the collection does need sort of somewhat, we would call it regular maintenance. Maintenance. It's kind of like Mm-hmm. dusting and making sure that you know you don't get sort of surface grime accumulating mm-hmm. the paintings you know typically they have varnish coatings on them mm-hmm. so they'll you know they'll last a lot longer in terms of oh, there's a bigger interval between the actual treatments but as for the titian it's actually kind of remarkable because as i said it's like the iconic painting in the collection and it actually received very little conservation attention or treatment and, and, and also technical work which is why we were so interested in actually right. this project it had it had been studied a bit back in the late eighties. Late eighties, it was. Yeah. There'd been some initial kind of pigment studies, but nothing very comprehensive at all. But as for the conservation treatment history, there's a there's a note in our conservation uh, records that say that in 1920, late 20s, 28, 29, Thompson, who was the conservator restorer at the MFA across the street, worked on it for a couple of months. We don't know what he did. There's no record of what he did. Uh, they didn't typically document what they were doing. But we think he, he gave it kind of a what we call a selective cleaning, where you, you sort of remove parts of the varnish to lighten up the, you know, brighten up the, the, the figures or whatever the case may be. But he left a lot of the old varnish in place. And then there was also a night, another light surface cleaning in the uh, in the eight, I guess it was the 80s too, where it was just a, light, a surface cleaning, but not dealing with the varnish, which is what we dealt with in this current uh, treatment in a big way. That was probably good that they didn't do a lot of extra work in the last 100, 200 years, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, a lot of objects, not just paintings, mm. a lot of objects, you know, did get damaged during treatments, cleanings. And yeah. it's one of the, yeah, one of the unfortunate aspects of the field. Often we're, we're dealing with the consequences of past restorations. Um, mm-hmm. And if they had just been left alone <laughs> they may be in better shape but you know you do the best that you can and you try not to judge um those that came before you because we had certainly have 
more resources now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do we have notes of why or how Isabella Stewart Gardner um, procured this piece or, you know, why this piece or was she just a, she knew Titian was a artist that she wanted to have more pieces of? Well, she was a, a, clearly a very avid collector, um, and, and and she had a wide interest in a lot of things. I mean, we have you know Oriental you know material from the Far East. We have Egyptian material. I mean, it just it's she, she was very uh, what's the word Catholic or eclectic in her eclectic, yeah. eclectic in her uh, collecting tastes. Mm -hmm. And compared to a lot of the other sort of uh, like Frick and Morgan, she didn't have that kind of uh, money to do this sort of thing. But she collaborated a lot with uh, Bernard Berenson who was a big, an important, significant art historian uh, in the late 19th century and into the 20th century. And he, but there were also a lot, a lot of other people who helped her, but he was the significant contact she had in Europe to, to collect Western paintings. I mean, that, you know, they, mm -hmm. they, they did that a lot. And he was always searching things out. And of course, mm -hmm. he got a, you know, a good, healthy commission to do that work. And so, but they had a very uh, close relationship in terms of, it wasn't just a business arrangement. They were actually great friends. And so it was one of those, you know, great moments where you know a collector is working with a great art historian mm -hmm. and amassing a pretty significant collection and in fact you know the titian is really significant too because it's the first titian in america we have a lot of those actually she was on the forefront she was buying things in a very uh, kind of uh, in a new way in a way that you know yeah. other collectors weren't even aware of and so we have a lot of firsts in this in this museum of of objects and, and paintings that she, that you know american collectors had were not interested in yet yeah, it, it's amazing when you visit the museum, just her her mind and her appreciation of the art and what was available was so clear and so forward thinking. You know, it doesn't look like every other collection you might have seen. And there's a reason because it's an amazing collection. You can't even imagine what her contemporaries were thinking when she made some of the selections she did. I'm sure they're probably uh, tutting some of the ideas that she had going forward, which is probably why she was so strict with her. Don't get rid of stuff. Don't <laughs> change stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and she did. She did. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you started to approach the restoration, conservation, you had mentioned, it sounded like a, a great timeline. Was there anything that you started working on and were surprised by, whether it, it took a little longer than you expected, or it was a little better than you expected as far as needing restoration? So I, so overall, the whole project, and I'm not just talking about the conservation restoration, but the technical work and, you know, collaborating with Bruce Kaiser and yeah. Aaron Sugar, Aaron who's, Sugar. A, who's a professor at Buffalo, who he, 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 he did some really amazing work with the XRF mapping. You know, mm -hmm. we collected, we can get that again later, collecting data, but then putting it all together into these fantastic maps, uh, elemental maps. You know, the, the whole project totally exceeded, I think, all of our ex expectations, aesthetically, uh, technically, uh, the Absolutely. outcome. Um, I, I mean, I couldn't be more proud of what we accomplished and you know, the, the work that went into it was just phenomenal. Do you have 
before and after pictures yeah. of yeah. the spaces. We can, we can provide, yeah, too. Yeah. Oh, that would be terrific. Yeah. I think um, our listeners would really get a kick out of that's one yeah, of the visible. things. And, and great elemental maps. So that'll yeah. really, you know, the, for, the, for, the, for the science geeks, that'll really, uh, yeah, that'll be exciting. I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah. We, we love geeking out about a good sci- about a good elemental map. That's for sure. <laughs> we do too, yeah. We found our people. Yeah. <laughs> so when you um, started working on this piece is it it's on canvas isn't it correct okay did you find does did titian do what uh, his contemporaries were doing reusing canvas reusing canvas or because this was commissioned he was able to afford not to have to reuse did you find a lot of brush strokes that had been covered over redone did you find any mysteries behind um, the, no, the fabric or something no the fabric is pretty Pretty standard, you know. The, the, the interesting thing about, from a materials point of view, is that he he was in an amazing place, which was Venice in in the Renaissance, and you know Venice was this was the the major port in Europe, which was import, importing and exporting materials all over Europe into Asia, into Africa. So he had access to everything in terms of you know pigments and you know and and they were big canvas makers there also you know in in in, in Italy, but. Um, no, he, he didn't. There's nothing in the materials he used that was out of the ordinary or extraordinary. Mm-hmm. What's really extraordinary is actually the way he paints. That's what mm-hmm. sets him apart. Mm-hmm. It's how he applies paint to the canvas. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's 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 the phenomenal part about his work and why he was such a an important uh, and influential painter in the Renaissance. And to mm-hmm. that point, he did not make many changes in this in our <laughs> in painting, painting in, our in painting. particular. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also interesting that our painting of the six poesy paintings was the last one that he painted. Mm-hmm. And if you look start to finish, you know, ours is the kind of most impressionistic, if you will, kind dramatic. of dramatic, yeah. uh, but the brushstrokes are looser and yeah. a little more mm-hmm. gestural. So you, you do see a, a bit of an evolution, I think, mm-hmm. throughout the six paintings. I, I was going to mention the canvas. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just that it, I think it's interesting for listeners to know that when you look at the painting, you see a vertical seam down the center. And that's because they actually had to seam two mm-hmm. sections of canvas together because, am I right? Yeah, that, the, technology, you know, yeah. the, the technology is, you know, the loom was about as wide as your arms could span. And sure. So if you needed a canvas larger than that, you had to piece them together. So from a material point, yeah. that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and that doesn't yeah. change much until later in the in the early 19th century when industrial revolution creates these massive looms, and you can you know you can make a 20 foot wide mm-hmm. piece of canvas if you if you need that. So yeah. And then as you were working, uh, were you thinking back on this is easier now when I have the elemental mapping, when I know what I'm working with, when I see why this is like it is thinking back 100 years to conservators trying to do this without the technology? So I think maybe we'll do a little back and forth here because this is actually this is actually the, the most interesting aspect, I think, of what we did. You know, removing varnish is removing varnish. Of course, it's a petition and you're really careful. And, you know, the amount of restoration is also a big deal. Mm-hmm. But so that what's interesting about the painting is we knew that from the earlier pigment studies, there was this, this finding that there was a blue pigment that he used called smalt, S-M-A-L-T. And it's a, it's a ground glass, cobalt glass material that, w- that came into favor in Europe in the Renaissance and into the Baroque. 
And it wasn't a, a, a substitute for ultramarine, which is the very rare mineral coming from Afghanistan, it's the present day Afghanistan at the period, but it's a material that got introduced into the palettes of a whole bunch of painters. So we knew that there was this small material in the painting. We didn't know to what extent it covered the painting or where it was exactly. Well, we had an idea of where it was, but we didn't know specifically where it was. And in terms of the painting's condition, um, even with a very yellow varnish on the surface, you could tell that the upper right corner of the painting quadrant, uh, clouds and sky, had a very funny look compared to the rest of the picture, which the painting is actually really incredibly well-preserved. Mm -hmm. um, so it, there was this question of what had happened to the sky in the sort of from the half portion up to the right-hand corner, uh, upper right-hand corner. And it had this funny look, which was this kind of, it looked like there was a red earth underlayer. Clearly it had been abraded, the, you know, the, the, the paint layer. And the one thing I want to say is that Titian, in this case, this painting especially, painted exceedingly thin. Yeah. It looks like there's a lot of paint on this painting. There is not. It's actually very direct and he got what he wanted pretty quickly, it looks like. So there was this funny look to the painting and we were concerned about, well, what caused this? Why does it look like this? And that's when the conversation started about, okay, well, we need to start doing some analysis. We had x-rays already, but that, they don't tell you much because it's only you know heavy elements that you're seeing, but you can't distinguish between the, if it's lead white or something else. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we do typically, and Jess can jump in here, yeah. is basically to start doing spot analysis, but I'll let you take over then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we have had a handheld uh, Bruker XRF since uh, 2013. And we have analyzed a lot of paintings. Um, so we feel, you know, comfortable with that. And so, yeah, it was like, well, let's see what's happening here. So this is a large painting. <laughs> so we did a lot of spot analysis. I think 38 different spots, basically looking at different colors to try to assess what pigments we had, what maybe combinations of pigments. And it was great and it gave us good information, but you know, I think the difficulty with all spot analysis is it tells you what's in that very spot, but you know, one inch over it could be totally different. And that's when we started thinking about mapping. And it was great because I, I knew that Aaron Sugar at the Buffalo um, State University conservation program was doing a lot of XRF mapping. And so we got in touch with him and, and Bruce with then. Bruce Kaiser um, from formerly, you know, retired from Brooker. And we got this little team together and it was this fabulous project that just formed. And we were able mm -hmm. to do mapping with a Brooker handheld tracer 5i. Yeah. yeah. And the amount of data that we got was <laughs> overwhelming. I mean, I mean, oh, 300,000 points or yeah, something 3, like points. that. And, um, and we weren't even yeah. like doing it in a very detailed way. Right. I mean, we could have gone even finer yeah. because of the yeah. scale. Yeah, the painting is a little over 80 inches uh, wide by 70 inches high. So, yeah, I mean, we couldn't do it on, you know, a, a micro, on micro, a micro level, scale. but we needed to get, to get a general sense of what elemental kind of, you know, distribution and, we had. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, we gathered all of this information and then Aaron made, you know, these beautiful maps where we could pull out element by element. So we could have a map of the whole painting, a calcium map, and then we could overlay 
a cobalt map and an iron map and start to pick out the patterns and and really, you know, use those kind of detective skills to figure out why is this area different from that area. So what was really amazing was what we discovered. And as, as Jess just said, you know, you're like, it's like a needle in a haystack. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you find a bit of it, but you know, what does it mean? The, 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 the significant thing was going back to this blue glass pigment, smalt, which in fact was distributed over a huge portion of the painting. It wasn't just in the upper right. We discovered that it went basically right across the sky uh, and down into the mountains uh, before you get to the water, the water's edge. And that was quite mind blowing to think it was all there. And what we realized is what Titian had done was he, he actually applied this, this layer of, of small over that whole field. He blocked in a huge area. And again, this is really interesting too, because at that time, if you compare it to Florentine painting, there was this, this school of thinking that you had to design it. It was called disegno in Italian, but you, you would do a drawing, a preparatory drawing, you keep doing studies, you'd work it up, you'd work up the comp composition, you would transfer it to the canvas, and you had it basically worked out and pretty well perfect by the time you started painting, and you started painting away, and, and that was it. The Venetians, and especially Titian, didn't do that. He barely drew, I mean, on this, on our painting, the other interesting part of the, uh, the um, analysis was the, the infrared imaging, and you can see these broad kind of uh, strokes of black paint, kind of a, a hard to call it an underdrawing actually, but it's like a sketch basically, yeah. but just like indicating certain forms, a very loose, very kind of not haphazard, but just kind of very casual looking. So he's, he's working in a very modern way. When you think of, you know, painters just going up to the canvas and start doing, you know, yeah. doodling. And if you think of modern, like expressionist painting in the 20th century, they're just like tossing paint at it. <laughs> they're not making preparatory drawings. Yeah. And he was basically kind of doing the same thing. And it's, it's, it's more, you know, it's more specific and refined, but the attitude is the same. It's this very modern kind of like, I just work, start working it out on the canvas. I'm not preparing anything. I've got this idea and, it's part of the process of, of how the painting's gonna look. So, so the small, so small just, it was, yeah. Just, yeah, it was just covering the upper half of the painting. And this explained a lot of things because then what he did was he finished the rest of the painting, worked through that, uh, you know, put in the figures. And there are the two puti at the top left part of the, of, the, of the image flying into the scene. And those were painted in. And then pretty well towards the end of the execution of the painting, he applies this blue, ultramarine layer, which covers the left-hand portion of the sky. And that part of the painting is actually in really amazing condition. The ultramarine is in oil paint, in oil, in a, in a linseed oil or whatever he might have used in this case, walnut oil, is very stable. And so what we think happened to explain this dark kind of look to the right-hand side of the picture was that Previous cleanings and restorers were cleaning away and they're, they're getting this beautiful blue in the left-hand side of the picture. And as they move to the right, it just stays this dark gray kind of material, which is the problem with smalt actually, is that we know that when it's, especially when it's mixed in a, a drying oil, it deteriorates, it starts to lose its color. So the color in that area had shifted from probably a pale gray kind of color with the clouds to a dark brown, almost black kind of color. And so what probably happened is restorers were cleaning away. They're trying to get the right-hand side to look as bright as the left and they keep cleaning. They keep cleaning. And, and because Titian painted so thinly, what they've done is rub right through portions of the canvas, to the painting right down to the canvas. And what we were seeing that dark red brown was the canvas starting to be exposed. 
So that's why it looked like that, which was very, very odd. And, you know, it really explained what it ha- what had happened to our picture. Yeah, absolutely. And when you looked with an optivisor or under the microscope, you could see the canvas threads, really. You could see the... Yeah, yeah, the nubs. Yeah, the nubs, so the nubs it, yeah. you know, where woven. Um, yeah, and in the recesses where, you know, the lower parts, you can still see some of the remnants of this small paint looking very dark and gray. And so that was significant in understanding what had happened to it. And then right. it also informed us on how to restore how that to restore. area. But yeah, we can right. get to that also when when you want to talk about that. Yeah, well, let's. I was just getting ready to ask, as a conservationist, when does the exit part of you kick in and how do you edit that from, well, they've messed it up. I need to fix it. Tishan wanted it to, the canvas should not be seen. I need to go in and, and fix it with some cobalt or something, or do you just leave it as a error that has been made that we learn from? So there's no straightforward answer to that question. <laughs> and every object, every, every, yeah, every piece of furniture materials. or painting or ceramic, th- these are questions that we always uh, like yeah. have conversations about. And working with the curators too is like, how do you want this thing to look? What's the end goal basically? So sometimes, you know, with a lot of things, we won't do a lot of restoration because it stands on its own. It's accepted the way, it, you know, the way it looks is acceptable. Uh, paintings are a little different in that, you know, they are two dimensional. Uh, and they so they have a history of, you know, being worked on, on and being clean, varnished yeah. and clean. So yeah. there's a little more. Yeah. And in fact, you know, the, the, the interesting comparison is sculpture. Mm-hmm. If it's missing, a, like if it's missing an arm, I don't think Jess would recreate the arm. No, I mean, it's a usually don't. It's, yeah. a, it's a very different sensibility. And it's also just three dimensionally. Uh, for some reason, a missing arm doesn't seem there's as disturbing as this. when there's a hole in the painting or something. I just, Especially if you're talking, you know, ancient sculptures. Yeah, I yeah, think we yeah, all exactly, yeah. accept the age and yeah, the, yeah. They've lived a life. Yeah. So, yeah. So basically how we go about it is, you know, as I said, every object is its own, has its own history, its own condition sort of history. It's, it's materials are very specific to it. So we, you know, we juggle a lot of factors into the conversation about how we go about restoring it. And so what happened with the tissue was, you know, once we knew what had happened to the picture in terms of the degradation of the smalt, you know, we we removed the varnish. That was, I, I never like to say straightforward, but it was without incident. I mean, it went the way we thought it was going to do. There was a lot of testing and we had a lot of analysis done actually with our colleagues at the MFA to determine what it was. And and I want to, we won't want to forget the most important part of this. Yeah. The, well, one of the more important things about the XRF analysis and the mapping was typically we also like to take cross sections, small microscopic right. samples that inform us about the structure of the the original paint layers and it could be on a polychrome sculpture it could Mm -hmm. be on a canvas and we want to understand what's the original we can distinguish the restoration layers that might have been added on top of that you know are there varnish layers that have degraded you know what's the composition basically of the object we're working on so before this advent of XRF mapping, you would just basically say, well, I'll go here and I'll go there. And you, you know, you hope for the best result in terms of what you find. And as Jess said earlier, you don't always get what you right. think you're going to get in terms of the analysis. The mapping really made us intelligent about yes. where we were going to take these cross sections. We only took 15 cross sections samples from the painting. Right. And just to 
back up one second is that, you know, we love as conservators to be as non-destructive as possible. <laughs> and so XRF is a fantastic tool for us because it gathers so much elemental information without even having to touch the picture. And so that's wonderful, but you know, you can only tell so much from that. And so with a project like this, that's going to be, you know, significant. And we want to really, this is our opportunity. We're not ever going to get this opportunity again in our lifetime to learn as much as we can. So it warranted taking physical samples. Yeah. But like you said, the mapping data is so intelligent because it was a real strategy behind what we were doing. Yeah. So, so much. We could really focus taking a sample from a particular area where we knew we could answer maybe two or three questions. Yeah. Instead of, you know, just taking three samples. Taking three samples. Yeah, right, exactly. right. So no, it yeah, reduced true. the number of destructive sampling we needed to do. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and it, the strategy was also, okay, now we know that the small layer is underneath the ultramarine. Let's take a sample that includes those two and see how he, you know, how he created that surface. The other thing about that's critical about cross-section work is that, that we can then not only look at it under the, you know, a, a microscope and do UV images, et cetera, et cetera. But then from that, you know, you can go on and do S scanning electron microscopy. You can do medium analysis. I mean, there's all sorts of other things. Without having to resample, you can yeah, we, recycle. Yeah, which, which, which we did which actually we did. With, with Richard Newman at the MFA. And, and it was interesting to just do the SEM analysis and corroborate what the XRF analysis was, was finding. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's just, you know, how, you know, how far you know do you want to go with the, the the information you want to gather? But yeah, that was a huge thing in terms of you know understanding how he worked and how we were going to take these cross sections. That was really significant actually for it the was. for the project. I uh, think it was eye opening for us. Yeah, really. yeah, because really you're not doing it in the blind before we have this, but you're kind of you know you might miss something, and uh, you know it was really really significant for us to be able to do that in a very intelligent it felt really safe yeah and methodical <laughs> really methodical, methodical we're not, yeah. yeah we're really like doing this in, in the you know the best way we can at this moment anyways yeah right exactly yeah so uh and i think your question then was about how we proceeded with the with the, the actual restoration work yeah so in so again again the mapping was really significant because we could look at like well here's where all the cobalt was for the small pigment and one of the, one of the really beautiful things, and I hope we can you know include the, in your present in the presentation you put together, is even the calcium map, which was really fascinating. Typically, that gets mostly covered over, and it's, it's usually the gesso, the ground. Yeah, layer. it's the it's the ground there. It's the, it, he applied a gypsum layer uh, to the canvas, sort of just to block out sort of the, the 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 color of the canvas. Again, very thin, very thin, and. It was the instrumentation was so it's amazing that, you know, so a, an element like that was sensitive to calcium, but it actually showed up in all the areas where it had been abraded. So where the paint was gone, the previous restorers had removed the calcium's lighting up. So we yeah. know these are areas where there that was been over Yeah, over cleaning had occurred. So that also informed, OK, so, you know, how much of this do we want to do? But ultimately, you know, in terms of the how we go about the restoration in this case we're talking about what's called retouching or inpainting of damages and losses or abrasions mm -hmm. the first thing we actually decided and we try to do that as much with any object is to really be minimal about the amount of restoration we do uh, because we've seen so many examples of like over restoring and covering things over that shouldn't have been covered completely. repainting exactly <laughs> So that's an attitude we have generally i think in most museums i yeah. mean it's just you know that's in the field I yeah it's a, it's a standard kind of thing in this case, I think we wanted to be even more cautious because 
again, going back to the fact that the painting is in such great condition, we really want Titian to shine and not any work that we're doing. Right. I mean, we should only be doing things that make the painting look a little better in terms of balance. And that was one of the big things. Once the varnish was off and, you know, some of the overpaints that it was on there was off, there was this discrepancy between the really well-preserved parts of the painting, like three quarters of it. Like the ultramarine. Yeah, it was blue. spectacular, so spectacular. <laughs> and then this area that was a problem. And one of the, actually, it, so, you know, we're talking all about technology and, and, and science, but one of, the, one of the things that we really relied on too was the fact that about 70 years after Titian painted it and it went to Spain, Peter Paul Rubens, the next generation of great painters in the, in the, in the 17th century, He's on some sort of mission, like it was a, it was like a, more of a political thing. He goes to Madrid. He's supposed to be there for two weeks. He ends up staying for like eight months because he sees Titian and he starts making copies, a lot of copies. And the Prado still has a lot of the copies there. It's really, it's really amazing. So he's studying, you know, the great master before him. And what's really, again, incredible, he was like 50 years old. He ruled Europe in terms of the commissions he could get, but he's still learning from Titian, which tells you how significant Titian was to the following generations of painters. So he actually made a copy of The Rape of Europa. It's in Madrid at the Prado. And, you know, when you look at that painting, he didn't use smalt. He didn't know what, he probably didn't know what exactly Titian was using. And his copy the upper right hand of the sky is not dark. It's not black. It's it has clouds and it's grayish. It's not as intense as the left side. But so we had further evidence of what the Titian might have looked at. Again, we don't want to presume that we know exactly what it looked like. We don't know. There are no color images. There's no way of knowing. So in terms of the retouching, there were a lot of pinpoint damages that were a little disturbing in, in the middle of the painting, the sky. So those were like specifically touched out. In the upper right, basically, you know, I used the, what Jess was referring to earlier, you know, that you could see the, the degraded small still sitting on the dark red-brown canvas substrate. And so really it was a question of just going in there with a loop and a lot of lighting and touching in the disturbing dark brown parts of, the, of, of, of that area that really read all wrong. So we lightened it up a little bit, but not everywhere. It was kind mm -hmm. of a literally spot stippling kind of approach to, you know, it's not a big brush. It's a very it's a kind very of, small brush. For I mean, we're talking, a big thing. <laughs> yeah, very, very few. It took forever. I mean, that was, yeah, that that was, was the, the most time consuming thing. part of the, of the project. It, it was hundreds of hours of, of mm -hmm. in painting and, and a lot of conversations with the curator and, you know, the rest of the conservation, like, what are you seeing? Are we there? Yeah, and you know, um, and we had people coming in too because it was such a big deal. So really it was to sort of neutralize and push back those disturbing parts of the picture that, you know, didn't go with the rest of the painting, yet keeping it as minimal as possible. And just so, you know, for lay people, or not scientists, not, but not people who don't know about conservation, we don't use original kind of like oil paints that the artist might've used. Those things will degrade and then you can't get them off easily and it causes all sorts of problems. So we're using very stable synthetic resins and pigments and varnishes that not only will not discolor over a long period of time, but when they're to be removed in the future, they'll come off with really mild solvents. Yeah. So we're thinking about the next person, conservator, who has to deal with these objects and how, you know, how easy we can make it for them in terms of removing what we would have done at this point. And then John Franco, you said that when 
you were working on this project for the larger uh, traveling of the piece that you had to make some considerations. What were some of those considerations for shipping a piece to multiple locations? So another huge aspect of it, because we got into the whole mapping thing, which is really fantastic. So yeah, actually, before we ever think about aesthetic considerations with any treatment, or especially for a loan or traveling, we're always concerned about actually the structure of the object, the painting in this case, and that it, it's going to be safe to travel. And in fact, you know, in our, our initial kind of examinations, um, what we didn't mention earlier, so there's the original canvas that, that Titian painted on and just described the two pieces that were uh, sewn together. But on the reverse of the painting, there's what's called a lining. It's a secondary fabric that was attached to the painting, we think somewhere around 1800. And the reason we say that is that it too is composed of two pieces of twill fabric. There's a seam running down the back of, the, of, of this lining fabric. So we know again that it's probably pre-industrial revolution. Yeah. And just the way it was woven, it just looked earlier than anything sort of in the 19th century. It was very early 19th century, if that, maybe even late 18th century. So generally we found that the, the adhesion between those two fabrics, the lining and the original was really good. But along the edges, we started seeing separations. and they were applied with, uh, they were uh, bonded together with a, a, an animal glue and probably a flower. It was a kind of a, a traditional thing that was used to, to adhere, in this case, linen canvases. And as I said, it, it generally was in really good condition, but along the edges, there were starting, there were separations that were occurring. So that was a little concerning. Uh, more critical was the, um, the strainer that it was on. And this is the frame wood frame that you know that this canvas is stretched over and it's it's not an expandable one which is what we call it a stretcher this is a strainer it's basically nailed at the corners and, and the cross members so it's immovable you can't tension the painting mechanically with with the wood uh, support so that was in actually pretty horrific condition uh there was a lot of old woodworm damage the joints were very weak there were splits uh, the cross members had actually bowed really badly. They were really kind of not, you know, in plane anymore. So, you know, that was a huge concern. You know, this is going to, and, and initially it was going to be a four venue exhibition because of the pandemic, Edinburgh had to back out, but it was going across the ocean, you know, and, and for those who don't know, we're talking about, even if you put it in a, into a crate and it's well packed, it just goes onto a truck. It rumbles all the way down to New York and then it's, it's you know, flown over. Trucks and truck, you know, it's just, it, there's a lot of handling and it's something we never like to see with any object, even if it's in really great condition. So actually, and it was a significant part of the project that happened just after we'd gotten into the, the a lot of the technical the work, the analysis yeah. work. Yeah. And there's a funny side story to this, which is really <laughs> interesting actually, but let yeah. me describe what we did structurally, which was basically, um, I decided that the strainer that it was on would not serve the purpose of supporting the painting for this trip. If, the if painting it, was very very slack. loose, yeah, slack um, on the. It's yeah. kind of like you know, it's kind like of a sail. like flopping, yeah, you know, <laughs> not a good thing because you think of vibration on a truck or you know whatever, and it's just flopping along, not good. And you're concerned about the edges of the painting, the lining fabric, which is it's like tearing. So mm-hmm. that's that's a huge concern. So what we did is we um, took it off that strainer, had a custom built stretcher built for it and won't get into the details but it basically incorporated a a, a rigid panel support system embedded into it we 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 set that into it still functions as a stretcher but the painting you know if you pushed on it couldn't you couldn't push it back back from plane it would just basically stop there 
So it was attached to this, but before we did that, we applied a, um, uh, what's called an interleaf, another piece of fabric, linen fabric as a kind of a cushioning. So this was all put together and we were really happy with that result. But the interesting story is that we actually started doing the analysis with the gantry and everything. We started doing the mapping the before mapping, the structural before, work. Before the structural work. But you want to, we'll go back and forth, but it was really, <laughs> really fortuitous actually that this went, something went wrong. Yeah. Yeah, something went wrong. I think we had, you know, a couple of weeks that we were going to um, do the mapping. And, and everybody wants you to do this really fast. Really quick and get it back we, on the we wall. Get it back on view. It's like, yeah, insane. <laughs> you know, legitimately, visitors come here and that's one of the paintings they want to see. Yeah, so we had started doing the mapping. And it was great until the day that the instrument stopped working. <laughs> We'd only done like one or two I know. passes, right? Yeah. Or would you describe the, the dimension? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the gantry we were using, the, the size that we could scan was about 30 centimeters by 40, by 40. By 40 centimeters. So 40 maps, basically. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So about 40 maps. Um, and we would overlap them a little bit so that we knew we got, you know, yeah, the whole surface. But yeah, the instrument... Uh, needed to be repaired. <laughs> so we were like, whoops, um, but that's okay because we sent it back to Brooker um, who they were great about doing the repair, but it but took, it took a couple weeks, I yeah, think. Yeah. And so very smartly, John Franco decided to use that time to do the structural treatment. Which, which, was, we, which we'd all figured out. We had the stretcher already. Yeah. Everything was like ready to go. We right. It just wasn't the order we had planned yeah. it. Yeah. So we had to be flexible. And what was fabulous is that before he did the structural treatment, the, as we said, the canvas was, you know, a little undulating and it wasn't perfectly flat. And even our climate control with the, with the air, yes, movement, it would, it was it would flop a little bit. Waving a little, you know. Not good when you're doing... When you want to be really perpendicular and have your exact distance when you're doing mapping. So it turned out to be such a silver lining um, to have the structural work done. The repaired instrument comes back and then we get back into doing the mapping with a much more planar surface so not moving yeah not moving yeah. not um at different depths so that ended up being a great a happy accident yeah 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 wonderful and so when it got back to the gardener john franco did you go and watch it uncrate and stand there holding your breath or you were confident yeah. by then that it was uh, fine so, so so you know the pandemic threw yeah. a massive monkey wrench <laughs> into everything you know typically what we do with when we loan things uh and they're you know they're traveling there's a courier from the museum it's usually the conservators you know that go with it uh, sometimes it could be if it's not an object we're too concerned about it could be another staff member a curator or whatever but typically we go along with it it gets uncrated at wherever it is we condition it it gets hung or installed and we go back home and then, you know, and then when it's coming back, we do the same thing. So this last round, so I actually back in March of, God, I don't even know what year, 2020. 2020. End of February. <laughs> end of February, yeah. Just before all hell broke, broke loose. <laughs> I actually went with the painting to London. We uncreated it and they created these whole new frames. So they got framed and it got glazing in front of it, installed it, fabulous. And then they had shutdowns, the whole, everything went wrong. You barely got back. And I, I mean, barely got back. It was a scurry. Yeah, it really was. And then States. basically we could not go back to Europe to condition the paintings because that's something that we do standardly. So basically we relied on our colleagues who are also great conservators and, you know, registrars. And they did the conditioning. And of course, then it had to be trucked 
to Madrid and we couldn't be on the trucks because you know half the countries are shut down and you're not going to get through. But before the painting came back actually to the gardener, I did go, what was it, two and a half, a couple of months ago before, yep. before it came here. Uh, I went to Madrid, spent a day conditioning it. We created it up, loaded it up on the truck and waved bye-bye as it went all the way, <laughs> all to, the way. to Liège in Belgium, no. which was the shipping port for, for, for the cargo flights. So, and I won't get into the cargo flights because that was a whole other, mm -hmm. you know, rigmarole in terms of shipping everything. But uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of stressful. But again, we rely on our colleagues just to like, yeah. you know, and in fact, when and the painting, we would do the same thing, yeah. you know, and, and, in and fact, yeah, in fact, when all the paintings came here, none of them came, none of the cur uh, couriers came from the other institutions. So we were doing live <laughs> Zoom video conditioning. Like with an iPad. With an iPad <laughs> and we're like, you know, and I see this and what do you think, you know, so, you know, we made it work. It was really weird, but we made it work and it was, yeah, and it was fine. We're a very collaborative field in general. And I think the pandemic has made it yeah. even more yeah. so, you know, I mean, we really, we're forced to do things a little differently than we're yeah. used to. So we, yeah, so we go to all sorts of steps to make sure we don't have surprises. <laughs> yeah, you're always you're always anxious, like you know, did it travel well? Right, I mean, but it's always nice to yeah. see it. Yeah, everything was fine. Yeah, yeah, everything was fine. When all the pieces were originally put together after the Rape of Europa had been conserved and sent over to join the other pieces, was there any? I'm thinking. Had the other pieces been conserved as well, or was there any thinking, oh, well, that one looks really good because it got conserved most recently, and this one, not so much? Or are you able to, as a conservator, as an exhibitor, display it in a way that doesn't draw attention to that? Uh, yeah, so ours was the most, obviously, the very recent treatment. Uh, four of them had been treated in the last 15, 20 years. So they're, you know, they're fine. The one exception is the Perseus and Andromeda from the Wallace collection, which was last treated like or cleaned and restored in like the late seventies, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. But that painting had had a really kind of uh, unfortunate history in that it was it was traveling a lot. It kept getting sold and and given, and it had like over thirty transits in its life, which is outrageous. It's a lot of transactions. And when you think of like in the Renaissance and the Baroque, uh, it's a cart with straw and like, you know, <laughs> it's not, you know, modern yeah, packing it's material. it's not crates. And, yeah, uh, and, and air ride air, trucks. And, yeah, air just, bumpers. <laughs> so it had a really unfortunate history. So it, you know, it's compromised and the restorations need to be done again. But I have to say it's hanging. It hangs right next to, to ours. ours. Yeah, it's on the left, ours is on the right. And in spite of its condition, Titian is such a great painter, it just holds its own. It's really amazing, even in it, you know, in a diminished state, it's still a really powerful, beautiful painting. It really is. Yeah. And um, and it has a great sea monster. Yeah, yeah. So, and, <laughs> so, blo and, blo and blood. And blood. Yeah, I mean, yeah, who yeah, doesn't yeah, like yeah, that? It's like, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> you can appreciate it. But it too has the, you know, and several of the other paintings also have this small problem again of yeah. skies like looking really weird because they're not no longer the color that they were originally. That's really fascinating. Thank you so much. Well, I just appreciate your time so much. This sounds like such a great piece of study, and I hope everybody is able to get to the Gardner Museum, if not before the large exhibition closes, at least when the Titian Room is back to full piece and uh, all of the restoration projects that you have going on in there get done.
Thank you to our speakers today. If you would like more information about today's topic or to submit a topic idea, please email info.bna at bruker.com. You can also check out more information in today's show notes. Join us next time as we look at a new solution with more scientists and technicians in all sorts of industries.